Anyone else just utterly baffled that it's the first Sunday of Advent? I can't believe it. <laughs> um, I honestly like, feel like I started prepping late for this, because in the back of my mind I was like, it can't actually be next week. <laughs> but hey, COVID time, still going somehow. Um, I used to love uh, this time of year when I was young. Um, my mum used to be utterly obsessed with Christmas. And uh, on top of our kind of regular Advent calendar, she used to hang up this kind of felt tree and uh, there'd be pockets for every day and she'd put three quality street in each pocket. And uh, every morning before school, me and my two brothers would race downstairs to see who would get the best quality street. And um, as that tree just got emptier and emptier and school started having things like non-uniform day and started kind of, I don't know, writing, making Christmas cards for your parents, there was this just like excitement, right? Christmas is coming. And uh, I remember being in the school playground and uh, saying to one of my friends, oh, it's however many days, 12 days of Christmas and feeling in my eight-year-old brain like that was a lifetime away and like my stomach sore because I couldn't wait for Christmas. Um, now that Advent tradition uh, was almost entirely, well, it was entirely to do with chocolate and presents. But the act of waiting of the like, this is excruciating. <laughs> Why is this taking so long? That's the whole purpose of the season of what the church has kind of historically called Advent. It's just, that just means arrival. The season where we wait for the coming of Jesus. Advent for most of the church's history has been a period of what we could call like a double waiting. So we, in one sense, step backwards into the shoes of ancient Israel and feel their pain waiting for a Messiah. But then we also choose to embrace the fact that we now are here waiting for our Messiah to return. And so uh, over the next three, four weeks, that's what we're going to do. We're going to embrace that double waiting. We're going to be in Isaiah 9 for three weeks. And uh, in Isaiah 9, God's prophet Isaiah speaks to a people who are living in a time of just kind of social and political and emotional uh, upheaval. And uh, we'll see over the next three weeks this great hope that he calls them to wait for. So this week we're going to look at the light of God, then next week joy, and then the third week we're going to look at uh, hope. So uh, if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Isaiah chapter 9, and uh, I'm going to invite Tola to come up and read uh, the passage that we'll study for the next three weeks. Nevertheless, there will be no more grievance for those who are distressed. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Machari. But in the future, he will honor the gallery of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. That they rejoice before you, as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the thunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, 
You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot unused in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will, be, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, and establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen. Well, today we're just going to be in those first two verses. <clears throat> um, and let me start by saying this. When I worked <coughs> briefly for the Prince's Trust, uh, we took uh, the teenagers that we worked with to uh, Mary Hill Fire Station. And they have there this like underground network of um, like pipes, these big tunnels. And uh, the firemen use it to train, uh, to kind of crawl through in the dark and find people. And uh, very cruelly, we took a bunch of teenagers there to crawl around in the dark. And um, we, got, we, we did this thing where we all kind of crawled in in a row. And then within the tunnel, had to switch order and then come out the other way. And uh, the girl behind me, 10 seconds in, just starts like wailing and shaking. But, I mean, we're in. She can't get back out. There's a few people behind her. And she starts like thrashing and trying to get out somehow. And it, she honestly was utterly terrified. And um, it's funny because actually that fear of the dark, that was an extreme example, but we kind of get it. We kind of get why the darkness is scary. And uh, there's, there's a reason that the Bible draws on that metaphor of darkness so much. Uh, we just view and we view the darkness as this kind of thing that sums up fear and confusion and evil. We rarely talk about the darkness in good terms, right? Like it's a bad thing, and the Bible will use it over and over. Uh, and like that girl in the tunnel, we can have this desire to like thrash and try and go back the way we came and squirm away from the darkness and the reality of the pain in our lives. But Advent, not just being the season where we switch on the lights and feel lovely, is about waiting. It's about embracing the darkness, owning up to the fact that we live in the dark and waiting for the light. Here's how uh, Fleming Rutledge puts it in her book on Advent. She says that Advent is the season that when properly understood does not flinch from the darkness that stalks us in this world. Advent begins in the dark and moves toward the light. It bids us take a fearless inventory of the darkness, the darkness without and the darkness within. So that's the trajectory that we'll take together this afternoon from a life in the darkness to a light in the darkness. 
So a bit of context will help us understand what's going on in our passage in Isaiah. That The prophet Isaiah is speaking at a time when the fractured nation of Israel is just really not going well. So the nation is split into two. The Assyrians to the northwest are threatening invasion. Northeast, I should say. Well, the king of the southern tribes has actually allied with Assyria and said, I'll I'll fight with you against the northern tribes. Israel is fighting within itself. There's a period of essentially civil war. And in many ways, the book of Isaiah is just written into a sort of spiritual and sociopolitical darkness. There's very little goodness going on at the time. But Tola read very well the two weird place names that Isaiah addresses, Zebulun and Naphtali. What's going on there? Well, these two tribal lands, are they're right on the northeastern border of Israel. And so essentially throughout the history of Israel, they've been the ones that keep coming under attack. They're right on the front lines of enemy territory. They're the first to fall into captivity from the Assyrians. And in the wars that keep raging around, Zebulun and Naphtali are living in contested territory. So the first type of darkness that we see in Isaiah 9 is a darkness of circumstance. And the circumstance that Zebulun and Naphtali were facing is one of already being in God's good land. They've inherited the land. And yet, not quite yet feeling secure of having a taste of the goodness of God, but this awareness that they are right on the front lines of the territory of God's enemies. So I actually want us to see right as we begin, Zebulun and Naphtali, it's not an irrelevant kind of historical thing that I need to explain. Actually, we all live in a Zebulun and Naphtali world. Like that, that's us. We... Thank you, Johnny. We live in contested territory. In fact, in many ways, the very purpose of this season is to remember that we live in what we could call the already not yet kingdom of God. See, in Jesus, we see that the kingdom of God starts to break out in the world. People are healed. Lives are transformed. Sins are forgiven. The kingdom of God in this room is here. And yet... The darkness still lingers. The fullness of God's kingdom won't come until Jesus returns again. We live in the space in between. We are all Zebulun and we are all Naphtali. In fact, Christmas is the time of year that I think we feel this most keenly, right? We eat mince pies, we go to carol services, we catch up with family. That actually might be the darkness for some of you, but for some of us it's the light. We watch nostalgic movies. It's an amazing time of year. And then at the same time, the days get shorter and our mental health starts to deteriorate. The nature of Christmas makes us think about things we've lost. Or in a very real but mundane way, we use Christmas and the consumerism and the presence just to mask a kind of gnawing sense that life isn't what it should be. Christmas is both. It's the already and it's the not yet. 
Christmas is the good and the bad of our world mingled together. So as we start our journey through Advent together, the last thing I think we want to do is hide from that reality. We live in a broken world. And in the liminal space between the coming of Jesus and his coming again, it is not wrong to feel that. It's not wrong to feel that deeply. Here's how uh, Tish Harrison Warren, uh, she's uh, a priest in America, here's how she puts it. She says that redemption itself requires that we don't skip over darkness, but that we let every tear roll. Now, one glance at the Bible tells you that. David weeps and mourns in the Psalms. Jeremiah was literally nicknamed the weeping prophet. Jesus himself wept when he lost his close friend. In fact, the Psalms can capture the the depth of our human experience in the darkness, better than anything else almost. And uh, in kind of recent years, I've found this habit of kind of praying through Psalm 13. And here's what David prays in Psalm 13. It's just so raw. He says, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. Now, the next time you think Christianity is about being chipper all the time, remember those words. The darkness of circumstance engulfed Zebulun and Naphtali, and sometimes it engulfs us. If you're here today and that feels real to you, whatever that is, let's not shrink back from that. The darkness of Isaiah 9 is not only a darkness of circumstance, it's a darkness of sin uh, as well. If you flick backwards one chapter to, <clears throat> I'm going to take Johnny's advice, flick backwards to chapter 8 of Isaiah, Well, you do that? <laughs> uh, yeah, if you look backwards at chapter 8, and uh, we start in verse 19, uh, Isaiah <clears throat> writes this. Uh, When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to his word, they have no light of dawn. Let's go back to that day in the dark tunnel at Mary Hill Fire Station girl behind me is crying. She stopped thrashing. She's frozen in place. People behind her are starting to shout because she won't move. And eventually, here's what she did. She just grabbed my ankle. And it was like, it was sore. (laughs) She grabs my ankle and I start crawling and dragging her through the tunnel, right? Now, like, that wasn't ideal. (laughs) Instead of standing still, or trying to bolt back the way she came, she trusted that I knew there was a way out of that darkness. I knew there was a light. 
and I was going in the right direction and she just clung on. <laughs> she held my ankle with no idea what to do and we started to go the right way. So the question that Isaiah kind of sets up is when the darkness hits, for us as well, when the darkness hits, where will we turn? Who will we trust? Whose ankle will we cling on to to navigate the darkness? See, the people in Isaiah 9 hadn't just been living in the darkness, but they'd let the darkness get inside of them. They had turned away from God and become so overwhelmed by their captivity and oppression that they start to look to mediums for guidance. They start to try and communicate with the dead to learn how to get out of uh, their darkness. Now, you know, as I was preparing this, I, I at first typed, for many of you, that's not going to seem that relevant. And then I was uh, on Amazon, which is just my favorite hobby to look at the religion and spirituality section on Amazon. <laughs> and number one in the world, best-selling religion book on Amazon is The Beginner's Guide to Crystals. <laughs> Now, if you're of a certain age, and actually, the reason I know this is my wife's not of a certain age, but she's on TikTok anyway. If you're on TikTok, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. It's actually not that weird anymore to be in, to trying to speak to the dead or communicate with something through crystals or astrology or all sorts of kind of weird, wacky spiritual practices. We have moved as a culture from a kind of hopeless materialism. We've realized it's bankrupt. And instead of turning back to God, we've turned to crystals and mediums. So for many of us, this is a very real thing. For many of us, we have friends who are into kind of new age practices and we think that looks great. For others of us, it is a kind of outdated, irrelevant thing. And for others, we seek respite from the darkness. In other ways, we stockpile possessions. We have as much fun as we can and try and cram as much endorphins into our life as we can. We cocoon ourselves from the realities of the world and pursue these never-ending journeys of self-care and self-help, hoping to just opt out of the darkness. Sort of level with you that that doesn't work. Self-help will not stop the darkness from coming into your life. Money or success in your career or good sex or fitness or the perfect family will not save you from the darkness of our world. Now, I said that this is the darkness of sin, but what has that got to do with sin? Well, I'm fond of St. Ignatius of Loyola. He had this definition of sin. And here's how he describes sin. He says that it is the unwillingness to trust that what God wants from me is only my deepest joy. The unwillingness to trust that what God wants from me is only my deepest joy. And in our Zebulun and Naphtali in-between world, we have got to learn to believe that what God wants for us is just our deepest joy. 
We have to be like the girl in the Maryhill fire station, clinging to the ankles of the one who knows where they're going. And for us, that's God. To cling to God's ankle, trusting that there's no other way. Everything else will lead us deeper into darkness. And you know, Isaiah can place the light and the darkness just a few words away from each other. Not because um, the darkness is just about to end, but because he knows it is a sure thing. There is a light in God. You may not see it yet, but trust in God, he says, because there is a light at the end of this tunnel. You know, we have a God that can be trusted in the darkness. A few years ago, I was going through a really difficult time, had some really difficult news, and <clears throat> to church and worshiping him. I felt God speak to me and felt him say something like this When the fog is so thick around you that you can't even see your hands in front of your face, remember that I am still holding them. Remember that I'm still holding them. The darkness of circumstance and sin is real. But we have to trust that God is holding on. Isaiah, though, is not just content to say, hey, it's dark, but one day, just trust, it'll be fine. No, he actually wants to fix our eyes on the light that is coming. So Isaiah describes a life in the darkness, and he begs us, don't turn from God in the darkness. And then he turns and says, look, a light in the darkness. Have a look at verse 2 again with me. <coughs> Turn there. I need to take Johnny's advice again. <laughs> He's really wise. All right. Verse 2 says this. Uh, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. My favorite movies of all time, and talk of Christmas. I love re-watching them at Christmas. The Back to the Future films, love them. And uh, if you've seen them, you know in the second film, Marty McFly goes to the future, and he finds a sports almanac, which, uh, I don't know, we don't really use that word, but it's this book full of all the sports results from the last 30 years. And uh, he makes it back to the past, and it falls into the wrong hands falls into the hands of the bad guy, Biff. And uh, this alternate timeline opens up where Biff becomes like a Donald Trump who has earned so much money betting and has this big tower and he's, it, the world goes terrible because he makes so much money betting. But with this book, Biff knows the score of any game at any time, as long as it's in the book, he knows. And there's a scene where he's sitting in the car and um, the book says, the score's going to be 29-28, say. I'm making it up. I don't know what the score was. And there's 10 seconds to go, and the wrong team's winning. And they're charging forward. And he turns to the guy, and he says, look, this book doesn't work. And then a squirrel runs onto the pitch and trips up the guy, and they break the other way. And the book was right. It didn't look like it, right at the last second. But the book was always right. F could speak with complete authority 
on things that hadn't even happened yet because this magazine. And Isaiah can speak in a kind of prophetic past tense. This has happened. A light has dawned because he just sees the reality of God's coming salvation as more real than the realities of the situation around him. It looks like the score is going the wrong way. He knows, he knows a light has dawned. Just as Beth was confident that the scores <clears throat> would go his way, Isaiah is confident to say that not only can we trust God in the darkness, not only do we hold on, but we can trust him so fully that it's like the light has already come. I wonder if you have faith like that. I wonder if in the midst of your darkness, you see with those eyes of faith that hope is on the way. Or do you let the, what looks like reality around you tell you what is true about God? The book of Hebrews says that faith is the assurance about things that we do not yet see. And that is not just what Isaiah had. When we trust the promises of God, we can trust them so completely that it is as though they've already happened. Because in a real sense, they have. Because God has promised. And when God speaks, it comes to pass. Because God can never lie. And so when he promises something, we can say it's already happened. What does God promise? Well, Isaiah looks forward to a day when not only the darkness of circumstance will be lifted for Israel, but when the people themselves <coughs> will break out of the darkness of sin and walk in the light of God, when they'll turn away from the false hopes that they've been pursuing and turn again to a life of faith. In fact, Isaiah wants his readers to know that something much, much better than a kind of freedom from Assyrian captivity is on the way. Yeah, they'll be, they will be freed from the darkness of Assyria, but they will also be freed from the darkness of sin and death. So when Isaiah speaks in a kind of prophetic past tense and says the light has come, what, what is he seeing? Well, for Israel at the time, I think they would have clung to Isaiah's words as a kind of ethnocentric kind of hope for renewal for their nation. That Israel would go from being oppressed to living in freedom and prosperity. And there's a kind of fulfillment there. But notice in verse 1 who this hope is for. It says, in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. Or in the NIV, Galilee of the nations. And uh, the Sea of Galilee, you probably know it because it's famous for being where so much of Jesus' life took place. Other than that, it is not a very special place. Historically, because of the location, we said it's on the northeastern edge of Israelite territory, a fair number of non-Jewish people would have called it home. Uh, but nowhere else, nobody else in the Old Testament calls it Galilee of the Gentiles or Galilee of the nations. It's just Isaiah. But I think he does that because he sees something much, much bigger than national Reformed. You know, it's as though Isaiah peers through the halls of history to a future day and he is blinded by light. 
He's dazzled by something. It's like he steps out of a dark room into the outside world and his eyes adjust to the light and he sees Jesus. He sees a hope that is bigger than just Israel. The Gospel of Matthew makes it clear what he sees. Matthew chapter 4, verse 13 says that leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and he lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. You know, Israel were waiting for a kind of tipping point in history. A kind of pivot moment where things would start to go their way. But the hinge of history is not some kind of battle. Not some kind of military victory. It's not political. Now, the hinge of history comes as our calendars swing from B.C. to A.D. And the light of God breaks into the world as heaven begins to infiltrate earth. For the writers of the New Testament and for Isaiah himself, generations earlier, the light that was coming was the light of Jesus. And he was a light not just for one nation, but for all people. History is divided in two. Before Christ was born and after. When the kingdom of God was far away and when the kingdom of God drew near. We're reading about a kind of historical rescue from captivity and or maybe wondering, why is this a Christmas passage? Well, here's why. Isaiah's light that dawns is a birth in a barn in Bethlehem. Coming of Jesus doesn't just save us from a kind of political or social or economic darkness. No, the coming of Jesus saves us from spiritual darkness, from a world just like Israel that has fractured in two. Saves us from the sin of our own hearts. He saves us from death itself. As Jesus was born, the whole world changed. As Jesus was born, a crack of light breaks through the tunnel that we are crawling in. You know the words of the famous carol, Silent night, holy night, Son of God loves pure light. Radiant beams from your holy face at the dawn of redeeming grace. Jesus is the light of God from all eternity. The one who has light and life in himself and he breaks into our darkness. Jesus is the light shining in our darkness. Come to rescue our Zebulun and Naphtali world. And he goes further and he takes all the darkness onto himself. The one who is light 
finds himself surrounded by darkness, abandoned by his Father, so that we could live in the light of God. So that we could know that dawn is breaking. The night is coming to an end. And yet, we still live in the pain of the darkness. At Advent, we look backwards to the birth of Jesus, and we sing and we celebrate, and yet we wait in faith. We wait in faith for him to come again and set the world to rights. You know, there's a day coming when the darkness will completely shrink away as the light of Jesus comes. This time, not in a stable in Bethlehem, but as he descends from heaven as king. The darkness of circumstance will flee away as Jesus brings his good rule and reign, as goodness returns to the world again. The Apostle John puts it this way. He says that death will be no more. There will be no pain and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And the darkness of sin will be gone as everyone who trusts in Jesus will find that they are cleaned up, changed in an instant, forgiven and made whole again. The light of God is coming. Here's how Revelation 21 puts it, speaking of that day when Jesus returns. It says, the city, it's the new creation, doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb, that's Jesus, the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. A crack of light appeared when Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. But on that day, the dam will burst and light will flood our dark world and the darkness will flee forever. In the words of C.S. Lewis, He didn't say that. In the words of C.S. Lewis, it will always be Christmas and never winter. It will always be Christmas and never winter. Well, what do we do in the meantime? Well, Jesus says it. Repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That means we turn from our other hopes. We, We say, no, do you know what? There is no hope in the things that I have been clawing at in the darkness. We turn from our other hopes and we trust that Jesus alone is the light in the darkness. So Advent, as a church, we want to take on a kind of posture of faithful waiting. We want to cling to the ankle of Jesus who says, behold, I am coming very soon. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. You know, at Advent, we embrace a double waiting of an ancient people waiting for their Messiah and of our world today waiting on his return. The darkness of circumstance and sin can cloud our vision in a Zebulun and Naphtali world. But God is holding on to you. Pray you know that today, that God in your darkness is holding on to you. Prophet Isaiah stands as a kind of beacon pointing to the one who can rescue us. 
the people walking <coughs> in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. At Christmas, light came into the world, and he is coming again soon. <laughs>